Good morning. And before we begin with prayer this morning, I need to make an announcement. Uh, you know we're here in Collegeville Courthouse, and next door to us in the room on the other side of that uh, partition is the Collegeville Police today doing hand-to-hand combat training. And so from intermittently, we'll probably hear a lot of yelling and hitting and screaming, and when we hear that, that's what's going on over there. I'll try to talk over it, but like that. Yeah, so you hear that. And we're going to have to deal with that as we go through class this morning. I'll just have to raise my voice so we can keep going. Let's go ahead and get a prayer in real quick. Dear Lord, thank you for your blessing, and I pray you will send your spirit to help us learn of you, that we can draw closer to you and fulfill your purposes for us as we study to death to get together today. Amen. Amen. So um, we're doing lesson number 12 in the quarterly, Oneness in Christ, and the title is Church Organization and Unity. And as we get into this, how many watched the funeral of George H.W. Bush this week? Anybody? Yeah, we recorded it and watched it. Was God glorified? Was the message of God's character of love presented? Was the power of Christ and his victory over death presented? Yeah, it was. No, it's huge, huge. Talked consistently about how Christ was victorious over death and how that uh, they would have, uh, he would be with his family again and his wife again and his do- deceased daughter again because of the victory of Christ over, over death. Mm-hmm. Um, was the message a message of unity? I thought it was a very powerful message of unity. It didn't, it didn't have partisanship in there of any kind. Uh, and it was a message of unity of the principles of love, of compassion, of serving others in service. It was very, very, very well done. And, uh, it really was interesting to see that being presented so strongly Christian in the face of the world leaders that were there. Sabbath lesson, uh, first paragraph, it says, As Seventh-day Adventists, we are Protestant Christians who believe that salvation is through faith alone and what Jesus Christ has accomplished for, the, for humanity. We do not need a church or a church hierarchy in order to receive the benefits of what Christ has done for us. What we get from Christ, we get directly from him as our substitute on the cross and as our mediating high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. Do you agree that salvation is found in a personal relation with Jesus Christ and not found or linked to an institutional affiliation? Yes. Okay, I, we agree. I think that's well said. Let's go to the next paragraph. Nevertheless, <laughs> the church is God's creation, and God placed it here for us, not as a means of salvation, but as a vehicle to help us express and make manifest that salvation to the world. The church is an organization that Jesus created for the spreading of the gospel into the world. Organization is important insofar as it solidifies and enables the mission of the church. Without a church organization, Jesus' saving message could not as effectively be communicated to others. Church leaders are important, too, in that they foster unity and exemplify the example of Jesus. When we speak of a church as God's creation, are we speaking of denominations or the church universal, the church made up of all those who have been truly reconciled to Christ? You know, I I think the true church is the church universal. I think this is leaning us towards that organized cooperative effort for for a a common goal. Believing that the church is God's creation for the distribution of the gospel, i.e. God's remedy to sin, believing that to be true, would we expect that Satan would try to infiltrate and corrupt the church? How would Satan do that? Would he try, would he try to substitute a false remedy or a false gospel for the true? 
Or would his primary attack on the church be that there is no God? Or would his primary attack, no, there is a God, but it replaced the truth about God and the problem of sin and the remedy that Christ would provide, replace that with a lie. If you were dying of a terminal disease and a physician had a remedy that would cure you, but you had an enemy that wanted to ensure that you would never take this remedy, what might the enemy do? You're dying, you're terminal, there's a remedy to cure you. Discredit the doctor. Discredit the doctor. What would happen if the enemy got you to believe your condition, your condition is not killing you, but your legal standing with the examiner, the one coming to look you over closely. If that person finds any flaw in you, and we won't call him a doctor anymore, call him a judge, then that, that examiner, that judge would be required to punish you and kill you for the flaws they find. If, 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 if when you're dying of your sickness, you were told this and you started believing, hey, if I'm not perfectly healthy, this person uh, will have to kill me for my, for my defects. What would happen? What might you do as the physician is coming and approaching you? Would you want to be examined if you believed that that person would kill you if they find flaws and defects. So how could Satan get Christians to twist their view of Jesus to believe that Jesus was, wasn't coming to help them, but was going to kill them? That's a trick question, guys. He didn't. Satan twisted our view of God, the Father, so that in our metaphor, the physician would be the prince of the realm, and he's got a free remedy coming to give it to you, but the prince is under the governorship or the rulership of the sovereign, his father, the king, and the king has a set of rules that cannot be broken, has no tolerance for any deviations from the rules, and the king will kill you if it wasn't for the prince protecting you from the king. And so the prince has got a remedy. If you trust the prince, you know what? He'll, he'll cure you, but, he, but he'll keep it from the father. He won't let the father know how sick you were. He'll only show you to the father once he's got you healthy. Because mm-hmm. the father, if he found out how sick you were prior to what the prince did for you, the father would kill you. The king would kill you. So how did Satan get Christians to believe that God, the father, was the one from whom they needed to be protected and that Jesus is our agent, our agent, to protect us from God? How did he do that? Uh, lying about what? That's law. And, and by the character, but specifically. Come on, guys. This is always back to this root because this is the final contest. God's law operates. God's law. By getting Christians to believe that God's government functions no different than human governments. Mm-hmm. It's a system of imperialism, a system of imposed laws that require the ruling authority to enforce breaks in those laws and punish. It's not design law. And so, did God know that Satan was going to do this, make this attack on the church? Yes. Oh, yeah. And so in Daniel chapter 7, 21, 22, and 25, we read, as I watched, the, as I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and, def- and defeating them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given to the saints of the most high. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. This little horn will speak against the most high and oppress his saints and try to change this at times in the laws. Mm-hmm. So 
What kind of war is this? Many Christians think it's a war of physical might. Mm. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 through 5, for though we live in the world, we don't wage war. Notice the same language. The little horn was waging war. Even though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. So what kind of war? To war over the knowledge of God. And this little horn power is going to wage war against our knowledge of God, specifically by seeking to try to change the law. Amazingly, Paul describes this in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, the man who's against the law, antinomian against the law or opposes the law of God, is revealed. The man doomed to destruction, he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So there's a war. This, this evil power is waging against God's church, trying to set himself up in the church, replacing God in, 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 in the temple. So what temple is this? So God looks down the quarters of time and he sees that there's a power that's going to come, a little horn power is going to rise, he's going to wage war, and he's going to be winning until judgment is given to the saints. And he says, and that period of time is going to last 2,300 years. It's going to be 2,300 years before the temple or sanctuary be cleansed because this little horn power is going to set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So 2,300 years before we cleanse our minds from these distortions till we are given judgment, given discernment, given the ability to tell the difference between the truth and the lie. And the core root, again, this is... Uh, from a book called Great Controversy, page 582. See what you think about this. The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle, we are now entering. A battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah, between the religion of the Bible and the religion of fable and tradition. And then this one out of Prophets and Kings 625. There is no such thing as weakening or strengthening the law of Jehovah. As it has been, so it is. It always has been and always will be holy, just, good, complete in itself. It cannot be revealed or changed. Pause. What kind of law is that? Think about What kind of law cannot be repealed or changed? Design law. Design law. Get your mind around that. Because the lie in Christianity is that God's law is simply legislated rules. It's not. He builds reality. His laws are the laws upon which reality exists. They, there's no changing. They always are. They're constants. There's no varying with them. But human laws, the way we make up laws, we can amend them, we can, cha- we can adjust them, we can change them all the time. And this little horn power is going to wage war against the saints, set himself up in God's temple by doing what? By trying to change the law. But God's law can't be changed. So what's he going to do? He's going to change the way we perceive of the law. So we don't see the law as design law. We agree with the little horn, with the satanic agencies that God's law functionally is like our law, just a system of rules. Continue on with the quote. She just said, it cannot be repealed or changed. Between the laws of men 
and the precepts of Jehovah will come the last great conflict in the controversy between truth and error. Again, what kind of laws do humans make? Imposed. God's law is design law. The final conflict will come over this question. And upon what type of law does penal substitution theology rest? Imposed law. The entire construct of penal substitution theology is based on the lie mm-hmm. that God's law is like human law and requires the ruling authority to punish the rule breaker and somebody has to die in order to pay the legal penalty that can be applied to your records. This is all fraudulent. Mm-hmm. This is the infection. This is the wine of Babylon. This is what the Adventist church was called to lead people back to, uh, lead people away from, back to the design law, worship who made the heavens the earth. Continue on with the quote. Upon this battle, we are now entering a battle not between rival churches contending for supremacy, but between the religion of the Bible and the religions of fable and tradition. Mm-hmm. Prophets and Kings 625. Now, in Adventist eschatology, how much of our eschatology is denomination, Adventist denomination, pitted against the Roman church and all of her daughter churches? Yeah. How much of our eschatology is, is, is pitted that way? Majority. It's all pitted that way. But, but this author, who's the founder of the church, of the Adventist church, says that the battle is not between rival churches contending for supremacy, but between the religion of the Bible and the religion of fables and tradition. Okay, and the religion of the Bible is the religion of the Creator, who built his universe to operate in harmony with his own nature and character. And the most prominent example in Christianity of the fables and traditions of men, what's the core of paganism? What is the core of paganism? There's always a God who is angry and wrathful, who needs a blood payment to assuage his wrath or propitiate his wrath. And you can call it legal, you can call it just, you can call it propitiation, you can call it penal substitution, but it's pagan. Amen. This is the core. And the Adventist church is deeply infected with this lie. Mm-hmm. And this is why we cannot finish the work the church was given to do to prepare the word for the second advent because we are not actually calling people back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and sea. We're calling people back to worship an authoritarian dictator who has to be pled off by the blood of a human sacrifice. Mm-hmm. George. This could be positive for evangelism because, you know, our church, the initial father, they used to believe in Sunday worship, they used to believe not in the healthy state of the dead, but, you know, they believe in everlasting hell. So if we can simply come back and say, hey, we're right about a lot of stuff, but we were wrong about this too. It, it could be a bridge builder to say, hey, we, we've been messed up and confused. So it, it keeps us from being prideful. You know, it should be a tactful thing. We want to apologize that we've shared a lot of the great truths, but we framed it in areas it didn't make much sense. The puzzle didn't really work well, so we apologize, but now would you join us as we leave this... Why do, why do they need to join? Why do they need to join this organization, George? Well, they need to join, but join the movement for truth. Okay. Join the movement for truth, which is, and I will tell you, this ministry transcends denominational barriers. This message about our creator God, his laws are the laws upon which reality are built. We only find healing and, and wellness in harmony with God and his design protocols, in an open trust relationship with our creator who indwells us and writes his laws on our hearts and minds, this recreating the inner person. This message transcends denominational boundaries. Transcends all boundaries. It does. Male, female, rich, poor, black, white, 
name it transcends them all. It's a unifying message, period. And this is why the devil hates this message, and this is why the devil wants to throw up these arbitrary distinctions between groups to make it actually think that it matters, whether you were baptized by immersion or baptized by sprinkling, or whether you take communion this way or do it that way, or, or all these things that really have no real bearing in the ultimate eternal destiny, which does, what's the condition of your heart? Have you been returned to Christ-likeness of the inner man? So, if you think about these systems now, when we consider human systems and God's systems and how they operate, what methods do human systems employ? The systems of the beast, for instance, versus God's systems. And can we, by looking at methodology, see the difference in the two movements, in the two spirits? Which system brings pressure and coercion to bear to get compliance? God's or Satan's? Which system presents truth and love but leaves people free? What method does Saul of Tarsus use prior to Damascus Road? What method did Paul the Apostle use after Damascus Road? You see a complete shift in methodology. He was zealous in both places for God. He thought he was working for God prior to Damascus Road, remember? Was he? Was he part of the, the chosen people? Was he part of the the remnant people of God, the people blessed with the oracles of God? Yes, he was. And was he passionate to fulfill the Lord's purposes as he understood them? Yes, he was. Was he doing the Lord's work? No, he was not because he was using the wrong methods because he misunderstood God's law. As arbitrary, as imperial, as punitive. It was only when he had a conversion and understood God as creator and his laws as not, he, he knew methods, present truth and lovely people free. What method does the beast of revelation use? No one can buy or sell, say who has, that's coercive pressure. What about those who are sealed of God? These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They're not out to protect themselves. They present truth and love, leave people free. Now think about this as we go through, how does truth progress through a population? Everybody wakes up in one day in the morning and they all have the same idea and we all agree? What organizational system would enhance the avenues for truth to progress? And what organizational system would obstruct? A system that leaves people free to have ideas to question, to examine the evidence, or a system that actually polices their thoughts. And if you don't agree with the established norm, then you have to be disciplined or, 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 or have some consequences brought to bear to bring your thoughts back into harmony with what we've established. Which system will actually be a system that allows truth to advance? Can you see it clearly? Why are some in the leadership of the SDA church seeking to impose a top-down authoritarian rule? Why are they doing it? Because they're like Saul of Tarsus. They're zealous for God. They're for their church. They want the church to be successful. They, in their way, love the church. They're not out to hurt it. But they have a wrong conception of God's law. Thus, they misunderstand his methods. And this imperialistic approach is the root to all rebellion against God. And one of his design laws, one of his design laws is the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. We actually become like the God we admire. And thus, when we admire an authoritarian dictator, we eventually will practice those methods in how we treat others. I received an email from an online listener this week. I'm going to read it to you and 
Because he's asking, this person's asking for wisdom. Prepare to share your wisdom. I thought deeply about your story when you went to talk to the theologians about whether design law results in bringing Adventist people into or out of our organization. The message brought Russell and a pastor back. I have been listening, studying for over six years now, and God's design law is the only concept that brings the Bible into perfect unity of love and that exquisite beauty of how all law works together. There is, this is where I need your help advice. My church and conference are infected with the penal legal view of God's law. This view has resulted in a fear-based organization that protects the organization above individual liberty. Almost everyone thinks the same, and there is little learning where members refuse to consider new ideas. When these ideas are surfaced, members subtly demean us. The pastor is an out-of-the-closet penal legalist where each sermon becomes more and more painful to listen to. The church and conference penal legal view misrepresents God's character, and their refusal to have a discussion drives me away from this church. When I first entered the church, I was on fire to learn more, but now these same people are stagnant. My life has been all about learning, but now I don't know what to do. I am very active in the community, in chaplains, Stephen's ministry, Bible studies, prison ministries, and know that I'm part of the end-time remnant church, but am compelled to leave as I am being smothered. Can you provide any wisdom for me? Uh, Wendell, wisdom. I don't know there's wisdom. Um, even Christ had to withdraw to talk to his father so that he could minister and do his ministry. So we, we don't necessarily have to be, be within a caustic environment. Having said that, he did describe yeast in dough. So, so, so what, what, using the example of Christ, Christ did not withdraw from the environment except to strengthen herself to re-engage the environment. Correct. Okay, so we have to clarify that. Right, right. As, as well as, as we have stories about Enoch doing the same thing. Okay. But he also told the apostles, if you share a message and they don't want to hear it, what are you to do? Knock the dust. Shake the dust off your feet and go somewhere else where they do. So how do you balance those? You can't have yeast and dough with yeast being over on the side and dough being on the other side. Right, so we, we are the light into the world. The light needs to shine into the darkness. So if we're not going to where people are darkened, but at the same time, with this type of truth, there has to be some receptiveness, some interest, uh, or some openness. Doesn't there? If there's friendships, if he, if he can develop friendships within that organization, then it's worth it. If he cannot, then it probably isn't worth it. Other thoughts that you might want to share? Yes, there's a hand over here. I think he needs to stay there and influence them with the way he believes and and help them. If you talk to people, sometimes they see your views and he needs to, I think he needs to stay where he's at. So I can tell you, I have friends that are in their churches. Their churches have um, told them that they can attend, but they're not allowed to teach anymore. They used to teach. Mm-hmm. They're not They're They've been told they don't want them speaking up and asking questions in class or sharing anything in class. They can sit, but they need to sit quietly. That's what they've been told. Mm-hmm. What do you do then? Walk away. <laughs> you perhaps walk away, or if you're going to stay, my recommendation, if you're going to stay in that case, is that you build the friendships and you invite people after church to your home for lunch, and then you have discussions in the afternoon at your home until you get a cadre of people who in the organization want to share this as well. And, 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 if, and if it's evident that nobody there is interested, then move on. George? 
couple thoughts. You know, we're told not to forsake the gathering together the brethren. And, you know. Okay, they're not brethren then, are they? If I mean, what, how do we define brethren? Are people who want to stone us for our message, are, are they part of the brethren? Are they actually part of the church if they don't have the character of Christ and are practicing the methods of Satan? If they have the temple, are they becoming the synagogue of Satan, as it says in Revelation, if they've got the wrong law in their heart? So you're saying brethren. I mean, I immediately go, okay, who's the brethren? Mm-hmm. A couple of things, though. Like, we know Jesus went to church, especially in his hometown, Nazareth, and almost got killed for it. Mm. Yep. And did he, did he go each week after that? Apparently, we're not told he didn't. He went, kept going to synagogues. No, he moved on. He moved on. It says in Desire of Ages that he couldn't do hardly any miracles there, so he left the region and went other places. But you notice they didn't do Matthew 18, because I guess it wasn't written quite yet, but I think in the Old Testament. They- so Jesus didn't have that wisdom yet to apply. <laughs> so so Matthew hadn't been written, so Jesus didn't know to do that. You're close. You're close. You're getting close here. No, it's George. This, I'm, just, I'm just pointing out some of these arguments. This, this is platitudes, George. It doesn't work in real life. Well, I'm looking at it. How come you don't do Matthew 18 hardly anywhere? Even here. You know, if you have people who disagree, and you're supposed to obey, obey God rather than man. So they say, don't, be, don't speak in church. Maybe it's wise to have more for lunch and do that. Other times, say, hey, listen. We have, we have to go to Matthew 18, they have a church meeting, and if the church votes against it, then they should move on, because, hey, these folks, if they're going to they're gonna muzzle you. At you, you will hardly ever get a church meeting to discuss this. The people in leadership will not allow a meeting before the church to actually discuss the issues, because those in darkness don't want the light, lest their evil deeds be exposed. And I can tell you from personal experience and friends around the world that church leadership will not call a business meeting to actually discuss the issues before the church. It doesn't happen. we got to remember, though, that we're not employed by the church. So this is a volunteer organization. We have some paid leaders. But the church, if they're going to let a shepherd who's well-meaning and or is warped or is, is sick, whatever, if they're going to let him lead that way, then they, they need to move on if they're not going to. But if that church will follow Matthew 18 or that church, these maybe not, maybe move on unless you want to be a missionary for a while. It can, it can work. So I think... We should try to get Matthew 18. If a church would turn that down, that's... So Matthew 18 doesn't really apply here, George. Matthew 18 is you have a problem with an individual person. That's not what's going on here. If the pastor's an individual person is trying to muzzle you so you can't speak, I think you have a problem. <laughs> I would tell the author that what he's experiencing is a predictable outcome of the attempts to violate his liberty. That's right. And number one, we all know this, what happens first... Love dies, so his love for the organization is slowly dying. If he if he continues along the path, either one of two things is going to happen. He's either going to want to rebel, or he's going to sacrifice his individuality and become a mere shadow of whatever leader that he's decided to follow, also in harmony with the law of worship. And this is what happens in organizations where this methodology is practiced, is that it becomes a self-filtration device where all the people who really do think either leave, leave, and you leave behind those who surrender their individuality, so then you have a church board or church organization that allows the authoritarian rule to exist there, and the Matthew 18 never works. I might suggest that uh, prayer would be a, a significant part of this equation, because who knows if God is calling that individual to be in that spot at that time to be the missionary in that church. Oh, I, I love that. And I think that's exactly right, that, we, that prayer needs to be a part and asking the Holy Spirit to give wisdom and insight. And then also always approach it with love for the other person in your heart. I mean, my reason I'm bringing this forward is not to prove that I'm right. It's because I realize that, that what's going on right now is, is obstructing the healing power of God in people's hearts and minds. And I can tell you, having lived in the fear-based system, and how many of you have experienced having been in that system, that imperial system, and then you've come over to the light that is really the truth of God and his character of love, how freeing and how much more joyful life is. And because you don't want people to stay stuck there, 
This is the passion and the reason you want to bring the message forward. And then we're going to move on. Wendell's last comment on this. We're going to move on to the last one. A lot of important things. Discernment is required. We are given a guideline of pearls before swine. Hmm. You have to be able to define or acknowledge or diagnose or whatever what swine is. Right. And you notice he said, Jesus said, don't throw, he didn't say don't throw your refuse before swine. (laughs) He didn't say that. Your pearls, your pearls of wisdom, your pearls of truth, your actual gems from his kingdom are not to be thrown before those who have in their heart to abuse you and, 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 and turn against you because of it. You have to have some discernment. I think it's good. This reminds me, though, of a quote from um, Ellen White uh, from many years ago. Um, this is from Count, uh, Gospel Workers, page 297. It says, but as real spiritual life declines, it has ever been the tendency to cease to advance in the knowledge of the truth. Men rest satisfied with the life all light already received from God's word and discourage any further investigation of scriptures. They become conservative, conservative Christians, conservative, and seek to avoid discussion. The fact that there is no controversy or agitation among God's people should not be regarded as conclusive evidence that they are holding fast to sound doctrine. There is reason to fear that they may not be clearly discriminating between truth and error. When no new questions are started by investigation of scriptures, when no differences of opinion arise which will set men to searching the Bibles for themselves to make sure that they have the truth, there will be many now, as in ancient times, who will hold to tradition and worship they know not what. Brilliantly said. Why do people in error fear investigation of their positions? And they do. Why? Unhealthy pride. Partially pride. That's that's one factor. It's not single reason. So that's a good. That's a good reason. There's other reasons. It, well, insecurity and the insecurity though. And what's what's what is it about their position? And I'm going to tell you, their position gives them a false security. Okay, it makes them feel safe. They've, they've done the, the check boxes in the salvation list. And if you take those boxes away, then all suddenly then they have their insecurities come back. And so they're defending against their personal sense of inadequacies and fears and guilt and shames and so forth because they live in, a, in the security to know that because they've confessed their sins, they've gone into heaven before them and Jesus has erased them out of the record books of heaven. And when we get to heaven, no one will ever know all the things they've ever done in this world. All the sins are gone and no one can know. Mm-hmm. And their security is in heavenly amnesia. Mm-hmm. Not in character transformation. Because they're afraid. If anybody saw and knew the struggles I went through on this planet, no one could love me. They would hate me and reject me. Mm-hmm. And distortions like, so that's why people get threatened. A.W. Tozer wrote, Whenever a church backslides from the truth and runs away from the plain word of God, that church begins establishing its own laws. Wow, that was quite insightful, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Okay, which reminded me of another quote from Ellen White, Thoughts on the Mount of Blessing, page 123. The effort to earn salvation by one's works is inevitably leads men to pile up human exact- exactions as barriers against sin. For seeing that they fail to keep the law, they will devise rules and regulations of their own to force themselves to obey. All these turn the mind away from God to self. His love dies out of the heart. And with it perishes love for his fellow man. A system of human invention with its multitudinous exactions will lead its advocates to judge all who come short of the prescribed human standard. The atmosphere of selfish and narrow criticism stifles the noble and generous emotions and causes men to become self-centered judges and petty spies. 
And, and would, would another word for judging others and watching what they're doing and what they're believing, what they're teaching, be similar to a compliance committee? Yes. I mean, seriously. What's a compliance committee? We're going to look over your shoulder and ensure that you're teaching the way we think you should teach and believing the way we should. We're going to spy on you. But we'll just, we'll just, you know, have nicer language and call it something different. Sunday's lesson, second paragraph, says the church also derives its identity from Christ, for he is the source and foundation and and originator of its beliefs and teachings. What do you think about this idea that Jesus is the originator of the church's beliefs and teachings? Have all the teachings that are found in Christianity, have they all originated in Christ? Are there any teachings within Christianity that you would suggest originated with Satan, yet these teachings are accepted as Christian? Can you name any? Okay, immortality of the soul. I've got that one on my list. In Eden, Satan's first lie to Eve was, you shall not surely die. In 1 Timothy 6.16, it says that God alone is immortal. Do we teach in Christianity today that people are immortal? Well, if you use the Bible, that's a lie from Satan. And what impact does that lie have on the kind of being God is? If it were true that God created Adam and Eve immortal, and then they fell into sin so they can never die, and some human beings will now suffer for all eternity in hell because they can never die, what kind of being is God? Is he very wise? Does he have much foresight? He certainly doesn't know the future. Or if he does know the future and he knew it anyway, what kind of being would create his own children knowing that some would suffer for all eternity? Would you do that to your kids? Well, so what kind of being? Is he a trustworthy being or just a, just really either foolish or capricious or, or sadistic? George. You know, key thing here, you look at like Psalms 34, 3, says, glorify the Lord me and let us exalt the name together. In a statement that we don't really wrestle with other people, wrestle with the principalities and powers of darkness. Because if we've all believed things are wrong, and we do, it hurts us. Hmm. We become like the God we behold. So hopefully, when we have these dialogues, that you know we can have tears in our voice when it's appropriate, and find ways that these people know that we really are concerned about what they believe because of the fruit it's going to have for them and their grandkids, how they're going to impact those. So the question that we're answering. Ideas that are in Christianity that are accepted as from Christ, but they're not from Christ, they're from Satan. One is immortality of the soul. Okay, and, and immediately linked to that one, immediately linked, stemming from that one, eternal burning hell as a punishment for sin. It makes God look like a very sore winner, you know, but if God's going to be that tyrannical, and I believe that at some point, I'm going to be tyrannical to my workers, my family, or my friends. So Christian Education, page 73, says, Satan has ascribed to God all the evils to which flesh is heir. He has pre- represented him as a God who delights in the suffering of his creatures, <laughs> who is revengeful and implacable. It was Satan who originated the doctrine of, eternal, doctrine of eternal torment as a punishment for sin, because in this way he could lead men to infidelity and rebellion, distract souls, and dethrone the human reason. So, immortality of the soul, and then from that comes eternal burning hell. Again, how does this dethrone human reason, though? Your capacity to reason and discriminate and understand, how does the eternal burning hell doctrine destroy that ability? You can't hold two things that are opposed to each other. Okay, so and those two things are? God is love, and God keep burning him. So yes, it makes no sense whatever that God is a, uh, God actually is love. God is love. And that if you don't love him, he will torture you all for all eternity because you don't love him. That makes no sense at all. And so Christians, when you point it out to you, you go, well, God's ways aren't my ways. I just uh, don't think about that. I just take that on faith. And what they're telling you is human reason 
is disengaged, dethroned, no longer in charge. Well, okay, let's look at another one then. We got immortality of soul, we got eternal burning. How about this one? What about any hell in which God uses his power to inflict death? A internal permanent death where the person dies and then not suffering for all, but he is the source of inflicted death as the punishment for sin. Would that also dethrone human reason? Mm-hmm. Get your mind around that. It would. Because God is still saying, I love you and I'm love and all I want your love, but if you don't love me, I'll kill you. That doesn't work at all. It works in no reality that can ever be described or experienced. It doesn't work. It destroys love. Further, this is what uh, one of the founders of the Adventist Church wrote in Christ's Triumphant, page 287. Satan is the author of death. What did Christ do after he brought Satan under the dominion of death? The very last words of Christ while expiring on the cross was, it is finished. The devil saw that he had overdone himself. Christ, by dying, accomplished the death of Satan and brought immortality to life. Who is the author of death? But if we have the penal substitution model based on the lie that God's law works like our law, then God is the grand executioner who uses his power to kill the disobedient. Now, Satan's not the author of death. God is. It's an act of God, and it's called justice. It's called doing right. This is Christianity again infected. We cannot prepare the world to meet God when we continue to misrepresent him. So here's another doctrine in Christianity that does not come from Jesus Christ. And then, of course, I won't spend any more time on it, but God's law functions like human law, the imposed law model. That is the root to almost all the distortions. To what kind of leadership? Now, in a third paragraph in the lesson, it says, um, although we may be hesitant with the concept of submission because of how leaders in the centuries past have abused it, the church is nonetheless to be subject to the head, Christ, and is subject to his authority. Our acknowledgement of Christ and his head as the church helps us remember to whom our ultimate allegiance must belong, and that is to the Lord himself and to no one else. The church is to be organized, and that organization always must be subordinate to the authority of Jesus, the true leader of the church. I think that's exactly right. We ought to be subordinate to Jesus. No question about that. So then the question is, to what kind of leadership are we to submit? What kind of leadership? Wouldn't it be Christ-like? Leadership? Yes, People who lead like Christ? Yes. Servant leadership? The problem with the idea of submission is that it is taught through the lens of imposed law, human law, rules over enforcement, coercion, and threat, and this is Satan's government, and it's not Christ-like. But Christianity is deeply infected with this type of leadership. We're to be worshipers of the Creator God who builds reality and submit to his designs or laws, which his laws bring health. They bring peace. They bring goodness. So we submit to goodness, to love, to righteousness, to healing, to restoration, to recreation, to eternal peace. All of this flows from the heart of God and is an expression of the character of God. That's what we submit to. All the authoritarian, fear-based rules, do or else, that's all part of the lie. The last paragraph says, The church is built upon Christ as its foundation. It it is to obey Christ as its head. It is not to depend upon man or be controlled by man. Many claim that a position of trust in the church gives them authority to dictate what other men shall believe and what they shall do. This claim God does not sanction. This is a quote out of Desire of Ages. Hmm. 
Did you hear what was just described? That when you get in a position of trust in the church, you do not have the right to dictate what other people believe. Mm-hmm. That's not God's way. Why do you think it's not God's way? What is God wanting to achieve? Freedom. Freedom, transformation, restoration. Can you restore godliness in a person by dictating rules to them? The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Last fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. It says, uh, all are exposed to temptation and all are liable to error. Upon no finite being can we depend for gui- guidance. In that quote still. Amen. What do you think about the idea that we are not to rely upon another human to dictate what we believe? What do you think about that? Do you agree with that? Would that include the general conference in session? You're a bunch of rebels in here. A bunch of real rebels. Yes. If you're out of the church and you're reading the Bible... It's the way the expressions are put in the Bible leads you to believe that God is love, but then there's his justice. Things like, you know, the example you brought before about uh, God will harden your heart, and verses like, if you follow my statutes and commandments and all that, I will not bring any of these diseases upon you, like the Egyptians had. Things like that, so... Automatically, they believe that God brings the bad and the good. So with uh, the Bible translations, how many of the translators understood the design law and how many were already assuming that God's law works like our law when they translated them into the language that we speak? Probably all of them. So I would tell you, this imper- the, the, the little horn waged war against the saints and set himself up in God's temple, proclaimed himself to be God prior to any Bible translations being translated into modern languages. This idea that God's law functions like human law was, has been assumed orthodoxy across the entire world, and all the world wonders after the beast. And so all Bible translations, I will tell you straight up, have this idea translated in that God's law functions like human law. And therefore, justice is often a enforcement of rules rather than the true biblical principle. Now, if you're a discerning person, you really read widely and compare all the Bible to all the Bible, even with the infection of the translation, the truth still is there to be discerned for those who are digging for the gems of truth. Um, the word uh, in the New Testament Greek that's that's translated justice, dikaio, dikaio sune, is the same word that's translated righteous or righteousness. Now, when you hear the righteousness of God, do you immediately think the same thing as when you hear the justice of God? No. But they're the same in the Greek, because to do the right thing is to do the just thing. And then that comes back to how you understand the law. And if you understand the law is design law, then God is love, then he's always doing the thing that's designed to eliminate defects from his design, to restore, to heal, mm-hmm. always under the methods of his character, which leaving people free. So he brings the remedy, the healing agencies that will restore and cleanse people, but he leaves them free to reject it, which results in pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. But you're right, that this is there. Privilege to get people like yourself, for example, to explain all that or have books that we can read hmm. and explain it all. But so, if you guys agree then, and I thank you for that, if you guys agree that uh, we should not submit our thinking to another human being, and you know, I've said it many times here, I'm not here to tell you what to think, I'm here to challenge you, but you think for yourselves. If we're not to submit, and that would include the general conference, that we're not to submit our thinking to them, would this invalidate or negate any type of compliance committees? 
Yes. They should. Yes. Yes. But this is what's happening. They're trying to set this up. Why? It's evidence of the infection of imperialism. Some people at the GC will attempt to justify their use of these methods by a quote from one of the founders of the FCA Church written in 1875. And I'm going to read this quote from Ellen White, written in 1875, that you shouldn't submit to anybody as an individual or even a group of people, but when the General Conference sits in session and makes a vote, that is the voice of God on earth and you should submit to it. And they base it on this quote in 1875. Notice how it starts out. I have been shown. So this is going to give us authority to many, many people. I have been shown that no man's judgment should be surrendered to the judgment of any one man. But when the judgment of the general conference, which is the highest authority that God has upon the earth, is exercised, private independence and private judgment must not be maintained but surrendered. Uh, That's Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, page 492. Now, what do you think of this statement? Is it a statement that is written in stone and is an absolute truth that is to be applied to all people over all times from this moment forward? Or are we still to reason and evaluate for ourselves and consider whether this might have been a true at one point in time, but it's no longer true? Can you figure that out for yourself, or do you need to hear from the author who wrote it? Well, in case you wanted to hear from the author who wrote it, I've got some other quotes from the same author. Who wrote that in 1875? You're going to hear a quote from 1898, 96, 1898, and two from 1901, multiple years later, which would show advancing insight and advancing wisdom, wouldn't it? Okay, this is where I'm at today. Here's 1896, and you can find this in Last Day Events, page 50. The voice from Battle Creek, the general conference, which has been regarded as the authority, as authority in counseling how to do the work, is no longer the voice of God. Wow. <laughs> okay, here's an 1898. Again, last day of events, page 50. It has been some years since I have considered the general conference as the voice of God. Here is another one from the same source. That these men should stand in a sacred place to be as the voice of God to the people as we once believed the general conference to be, that is past. Do you not No, no, you check them out. And here's one, it's a little longer quote. Here's a little longer quote. This is, uh, this is from 1901 also, and you can find it in a manuscript release 37, 1901, page 8. It is working upon wrong principles. I'm going to emphasize that. Notice what the problem here is. Working along upon wrong principles. What are principles? Are they rules or are they design protocols? Design protocols. Okay. So working with the wrong methods, designs, protocols, principles. It is working upon wrong principles that has brought the cause of God into its present embarrassment. Mm -hmm. The people have lost confidence in those who have the management of the work. Yet we hear, H-E-A-R, we hear that the voice of the conference is the voice of God. Every time I've heard this, I have thought it was almost blasphemy. Hmm. The voice of the conference ought to be the voice of God, but it is not. Because some of the, some in connection with it are not men of faith and prayer. They are not men of elevated principle. Notice she doesn't say they are not men who follow the rules. She didn't say they don't follow the rules. 
She said they're not men of elevated principle. They have embraced a rule system and have not embraced the principled system. Keep going with the quote. There is not a seeking of God with a whole heart. There is not a realization of the terrible responsibility that rests upon those in the institution. Now notice to do what? To mold and fashion minds after the divine similitude. Notice, the focus here is, how, how do hearts and minds get fashioned after the character of God? How does that happen? What, what method must be employed in order for that to occur? Can you make hearts and minds fashioned after God's by imposing rules? You've got to leave people free. Truth presented in love, leaving people free. These leaders have rejected the principles of God and therefore, because they won't practice those principles, the general conference is no longer the voice of God. I'm going to suggest to you this has been ever since 1888 when the message came that the righteousness by faith message, that is the truth presented in love, leaving people free, transforming the hearts, the design law, the true message of the three angels. When that message came forward, those stuck in the imperial law model that God's law works like human law, controlled the administrative organs of the church. Mm -hmm. And they shipped the voice that would bring this healing message off to Australia, sidelining her as much as possible, and continued to implement more and more authoritarian measures with policies and procedures and rules, and eventually it continued to unfold until new books came out changing the meaning of what we taught, uh, talking about... um, Questions on doctrines that came out in the 1950s, and and then we eventually developed creeds that we don't call them creeds because there's this quote from Ellen White that we aren't to have creeds. The Bible alone is our creed, so we call that a fundamental belief. But if you look up the dic- definition of a creed in the dictionary, the dictionary definition of, of a creed is a system of fundamental beliefs. Okay, and so we've done that to further police people's brains and thoughts and box them in and what they should uh, espouse to. So we have a checklist so that we can have unity. <laughs> and our unity. We will all agree on the right 28 things to teach. We will behave in the right way. We will dress in a similar fashion. We will eat the same foods. We'll go to church on the same day. We baptized in the same way. And therefore, we are unified. Do you understand? It's a fraud. This is not the gospel. This is not the voice of God. The voice of God is a message that brings us hearts that love each other. And that's why I mentioned the George Bush funeral. If you watch the George Bush funeral, they were not all one denominational organization. They were baptized. But you saw, brought forth love. There was genuine love manifest amongst those people. When, 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 the, when the priest talked about the dying moments of H.W., George H.W. and about how his friend... Howard Baker was massaging his feet Mm. while he died. It was just profound. And you see the self-sacrificial service for others. And he talked and made the analogy about how his man, this head of state, um, um, Howard Baker, is serving and ministering to a former head of state who served and ministered to others. And he was, he was bringing out the, the law of love in action and how we serve and minister and lead in this way. It was quite profound. They didn't discuss how they were baptized, which, which, which day they went to church on. It was not relevant. And we want to argue about these things and make them the things. There's a hand. Wendell? For those who want a more lengthy reading, the, on Friday, the, the 
They gave a lot of reading on Friday. But the very first one, Individual Responsibility and Christian Unity, is 20 pages from Testimonies to Ministers. In in that quote, she, she gives several historical letters that she has written to the administration and it's replete with do not follow one man, do not follow the administration, do not let anyone else be in charge of your... So as we move on, what happens then when we begin, when we replace design law, how reality works, with a system of imperial rules, is we get all kinds of craziness things that happens. All kinds of craziness things. Russell emailed me this week, actually yesterday, about a professor at Minnesota State University who tweeted that the Virgin Mary did not give consent to be pregnated by the Holy Spirit because of the power differentiation created from between a created being and God. And this is this is from his tweet. The biblical God regularly punishes disobedience. The power difference, deity versus mortal, and the potential for violence for saying no negates her yes. To put someone in this position is, is an unethical abuse of power at best and grossly predatory at worst. Do you agree with him? No. You should. Yes. He's exactly right. Yes. He is exactly right. If you actually understand what he's describing, the God who says, if you don't do what I say, I'll use my power to kill you. I'll use my power to torture you. And oh, by the way, I'd like you to do this, but you're free to say no. But if you say no, I'll punish you. That's what he's describing. He's describing an authoritarian God who punishes those who don't do what they say. And so he's basing his conclusions that she didn't give free will consent on the standard view of God's law and the way he operates, imperialism. Mm -hmm. And if God were to operate that way, this guy's absolutely right. But he doesn't understand because Christians haven't shown him that's not God's law. God's law is design law. There was no threat to Mary. She was perfectly free to say no. And the only thing that would happen to Mary had she said no is she wouldn't have been the mother of Jesus. She would have lost the privilege of being the mother. But nothing more would have happened. There'd been no retaliation, no threats, no coercion, no punishment. She's totally free. But you can't get there when you worship an imperial God. You get these very distorted conclusions. You all see that now. Okay, if, if I haven't made that clear, if I have somehow have, have messed that up and somebody's confused, let's clarify, because I don't want to leave here if I make you think that I believe that Mary was cursed. I don't believe she was. I think she was believe free. Mm-hmm. I put the link, if anyone wants to see the art- article for themselves, the link is in, the news article's in there. Um, Monday's lesson asks us to read Matthew 20, 25 through 28. Let's, let's look at this real quick and think about systems of organization and how we use power. And notice what Jesus describes. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentile Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And they go on to describe, I think very nicely, how the Roman system of authority was a top-down authority over coercive pressure. And that's how the Roman church runs. And the movements that are coming out of certain parts of our organization now, there are individuals trying to bring that method to bear in our church. But that's not what Christ said. No, you're not going to have authority over your brother unless you don't believe Jesus. No, we have to have hierarchy. We have to have somebody in charge. We need to have a prophet. We need to have an apostle. We need to have a pastor. We need to have a general conference president. We need to have somebody to take charge and keep us in line and tell us what to think and how to think. We need that. 
No. Do you know there's tons of people in the Seventh-day Adventist church that believe that way? Oh, yeah. And it's not what Jesus is. You're not going to have that authority over each other. That's not how uh, my system will run. It's Roman to do that. It's all roots again back in the type of law you understand is operating. Wednesday's lesson, first paragraph. One of the main issues of church organization is to deal with discipline. How discipline helps to preserve church unity is sometimes a touchy subject and easily may be misunderstood. But from a biblical perspective, church discipline centers on two important areas. Preserving purity of doctrine and preserving purity of church life and practice. Is this true or false? False. This is a lie. This is not true. This is imperialism. This is the imposed law model. This is level four thinking. This is, is, is thought police. This is compliance officers. No. What is the purpose of the church organization? Is the purpose of the church organization to monitor each other and police each other and discipline each other? Is that our purpose? No. What is the purpose? Healthy thinking. Healthy thinking? Yes, exactly. Which leads to healthy living. Yes, right? So it's to spread the love and truth of God. Primary and foremost is the mission of the church is to spread the truth and love of God. Yes or no? Okay? Into the hearts and minds of people, obviously, not onto tablets of stone or, you know, writings on walls, but into the hearts and minds of people. To oppose evil as defined as actual breaks in God's design that cause real injury and harm. We, we should oppose that. Standing up and opposing it with the methods of God. Truth presented in love, leaving people free. Showing a better way. Mm-hmm. To demonstrate by action how God's methods work. Showing, being lights to the world, how we live and showing a better way. Yes, yeah, so the, the priest read a plaque that George H.W. gave to him. I can't remember exactly how it went. Does anybody remember the exact quote? Mm-mm. It says, um, you know, whatever you do, preach Christ. And if you have to, use words. I love that. Good. Or, yeah, wherever you go, preach Christ. And if necessary, if you find it necessary, use words. Pardon? Right. And this, this was part of the sermon. And it's brilliant, isn't it? George H.W. gave that to his priest. The one he said the purpose of discipline was, I don't know the two reasons it gave, but the purpose of any discipline is for the development of character. And the discipline is, is given in love. It's not right. to preserve doctrine. It's not to preserve unity. It's for the development of individual or corporate character. The last paragraph is written with a different perspective. So, so I'm about to say, the, to minister to each other in love in order to help each member grow, mature, and experience victory over fear and selfishness in their lives. That is the mission of the church, isn't it? To minister, which is much more like a 12-step program than the way most churches run. And you think about a 12-step program. When somebody comes to a 12-step program, hi, I'm Joe, I'm an alcoholic. And what's the immediate message? Hi, Hi, welcome. Now, is, is, is anybody who is familiar with 12-step groups, answer this question with for me. In any 12-step group I've ever been to, when the, when the addict comes in, introduces themselves, acknowledges their addiction to the group, is anyone, the addict who comes, the group that's there, send the message, your addiction's good and healthy? No. Certainly not. It's okay to be addicted. No. We long for more addiction. No. No. Isn't it understood that your addiction's a bad thing? 
Your addiction, your addiction is destructive. It's harming. It's injuring you, your family, the community. We love you, and we want you free of the addiction. And we're going to help you. Isn't that the message? It's understood. Isn't it understood? Why is that not the way sin is understood in the church? Why? Because the 12 steps operate as an addiction, as a disease process. Something that you need victory over, not something you need legal pardon for. The church has accepted the lie that God's law works like human law, and therefore the problem with sin is a legal registry of all the bad deeds you've done, and you don't need to be transformed. You need to have records adjusted somewhere, and you need a legal adjustment in your standing, and you need pardon, and then and, and you need to then cover it all up with the, whatever metaphor you want to use to cover and hide it so people don't know how corrupt you really are. And this is why people go to church and they live in a fraudulent life, in a fraudulent system, in fear, and they wear their masks to church. There's very little genuine genuineness at church. People come with their facades and their pretense, but you don't come with the openness you get in a 12-step meeting. Because Because they're afraid they won't be loved. Yeah. They won't be accepted. Their shame keeps barriers up. And, the, and this is part of what the church is supposed to break. That's why the Bible says that we are to confess our sins one to another, not in a confessional per se, but when we have deviated from God's design, we feel ashamed. We feel broken. We feel flawed. We feel dirty. We feel like no one could ever love me if they knew. And part of the healing process is to share, not with every person, because some people aren't mature enough to hear it, but to share with another mature Christian person who has godly in their heart, the struggles you've had and experience the fact, even though they don't like the struggles you've been through and the problems you've had, they love you. You're still loved. They don't reject you for it. They want to see victory for you. That's what the church is supposed to be. But it can't ever get there. And and when people won't experience this unity, the real unity of love, as long as we hold to the imperial law construct. Mm -hmm. I'm really challenging people. Not only free your own mind, but start trying to free the people in your community from this lie, and then next time a job opening comes for a leadership position in your church that you have some voice in, maybe a standard ought to be, do you understand God's design law? Mm-hmm. No. Because if you think about the 12-step programs, while everyone is accepted at the 12-step program, do you let the person who's still addicted run the program? Do you let the person who's not in recovery start sponsoring somebody who's new? You don't, not because you don't love them, because they're not prepared to help somebody yet. They're still struggling themselves. And so maybe we should call on people who have some concept and application of design law in their life to be our leaders and stop putting these people in leadership who are only going to use imperial rules on us. Just a thought. Gracious Father in heaven, We long for your people to come to know you as you have revealed yourself in Christ to be, to have an experience of your indwelling spirit, to take your design protocols, your principles of love and truth and liberty and restore them in our characters, writing them on the tablets of our hearts and minds, regenerating us and recreating us to actually be like you so that we can be lights in this world and we can be settled both intellectually and spiritually beyond any shaking or movement back towards the world. We ask that you will open avenues within the organization, if that's your plan, that uh, that various um, entities and, and powers within the systems start embracing this truth and start sharing it, because we really want the world to be lighted with this truth, and we want to see you face to face.
And we pray that you will pour your spirit upon us to enable us to be effective, that you might come soon in your holy name. Amen.